Psalms 113 through 118, sometimes known as the Egyptian Hallel, Hallel meaning praise. We're often sung in connection with the Passover. The first two of the Psalms usually before the Passover meal and the remaining four after. What I'd like to do this morning as we begin is to read some excerpts from each of these psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. If you'd like to follow along with me, we begin in 113 with the first two verses. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. Psalm 114, when Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. Praise the Lord, all nations. Loud him, all peoples. For his loving kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Open to me the gates of righteousness, the psalmist writes. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, and I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Amen. Last week, I asked a provocative question how many of us really listen? We either follow words that have no authority or we ignore words that do. 
And we began last week's message by playing the game of Simon Says to make you aware of how important it is not only to listen to words, but to react to them properly. And specifically, the Word of God. To reiterate, if God's ever going to be able to get through to us through His Word, then we are going to have to become good listeners. But just not listeners, doers. Hearers and doers. And this is the whole tragedy of what happened to the Jewish people during the Passover season in Jesus' day, specifically beginning on Palm Sunday. As these psalms were in the minds and on the lips of the people as they they waved the palms and they proclaimed Hosanna, they somehow missed the fulfillment of those words that, that, that was right in front of them, Jesus. Their Messiah was there, but they failed to respond rightly or to receive him humbly, even though they had been told. I think of Jesus' words in Matthew 23. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, and he said, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things, and they do not Do them. He goes on to say in verse 34 of that same chapter, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. What Jesus is saying there is virtually from the first book of the Old Testament to the last book of the Old Testament, you people have shed righteous blood of the prophets that I have sent to you. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now fast forward to 10.50 a.m., April 9th, 2017, Fayette Baptist Church. Third row, second seat in the cafe. Or eighth row, seventh seat in the sanctuary. Or you choose the seat that you're sitting on or the place where I'm standing or wherever you and I are this morning, if Jesus were to return today, how would he find you and me? It's another provocative question, isn't it? In the text we dealt with last week, James puts us to the test. If we can hear the word and not be affected by it in some way, then there may be some serious questions we need to ask 
about the genuineness of our faith. James chapter 1, verses 19 to 22 revealed to us last time that our reaction to the word reveals the reality of our faith. And I said to you that in this passage, there are four reactions, according to James, as a response to God's word, whether, whenever we're exposed to it, whether it's here on Sundays or whether you're exposed to it in your small groups or in a one-on-one conversation with another Christian or in your personal time, whatever it may be, which we can use as a test to see if our faith is real. And the first thing that James pointed out to us in verses 19 and 20 was that we need to react to that word rightly. And he said there's something to recognize. This you know, my beloved brethren, it says in verse 19. In other words, recognize that there's regenerating power in the word, according to verse 18. If we truly recognize God's word as power to change us, then secondly, he says there's there's a way to respond. And he says, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Be ready to hear. Be reluctant to speak. Restrain your anger. Or in other words, what did we say? Perk your ears, zip your lips, and check your anger, right? James says, to listen eagerly to the message of the word. Don't speak too quickly. Think first. Don't let your anger get the better of you. And there's a reason behind that in verse 20. He says, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Anger kills the spirit of God's righteousness. Anger is not the atmosphere in which God's righteousness thrives. So, James said first, react to the word rightly. Secondly, he said, receive the word humbly. Verse 21, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Notice James' command there, receive the word. He's saying an attitude of true faith is ready to receive the word, not just in your head, but in your heart, where it can do some serious work. There's a condition to be met, however, before you can receive this word. Remember what it was? It's right there. You've got cheat sheet right in front of you. Humility, right? In humility. In other words, he's saying, he first he says, you got to clean up before we can deal with the word And the word will deal with us. We must deal with our sin. He says, strip it all off. Putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted. In other words, prepare yourselves before coming to this word. Expect that you will be changed by it. But don't just clean up. He says, dress up. In humility, put on the clothes of humility. So the question now is, is there filthiness in your life? Or is there wickedness in your life? James says, lay it aside with a humble attitude. Welcome the word that was implanted in you on the day that Christ saved you. But even though it was divinely implanted, we have a responsibility, James says. And this word must be welcomed and acted upon. And it in turn renews us, revives us. It does its work in us. Amen? The Word of God always changes a person somehow, some way, when it's received in this way. Because why? It's living and it's active. So James says, react rightly, receive humbly. But there's more to it, James says. There's a further response to God's Word that reveals the reality of your faith. Once you've received it, what will you do with it? 
That's the issue. So he says, thirdly, respond practically. Respond practically. Look at verses 22 to 25. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. In other words, James is saying, respond practically. Just do it. Just do it. As a habit of life. Grammatically, this is another command that James issues here. Lots of commands in this book. And so the question is now, is doing the word your habit of life? Is it mine? So he's saying, don't just talk, hear. But don't just hear, listen. But don't just listen, do. Do. Simple little word, isn't it? Simple to read, simple to say, simple to hear. A little bit more difficult to accomplish. It's interesting that even that, er, that early, now we've said that James is probably the first book of the New Testament written, James knew what the general response was toward the Word of God, and he blatantly challenged it right here. He says that if you only hear this Word and you fail to do anything about it, guess what? You're operating under false pretenses about the reality of your faith. And he's going to get into that in a, in a subsequent chapter. See, it was common in those days for the Greeks to attend lectures. And those Greeks were not the disciples of the lecturer. Now, when I was in Scotland last year, I attended a number of lectures at the University of St. Andrews. Highly intelligent people. They lost me on the second paragraph, most of them. I attended those lectures, but I was not a disciple of those lecturers. Okay? Those people in James' day, the Greeks who attended lectures, but they were not disciples of the lecturers, they were known as something. They were known as hearers. They were hearers who, did, who in life did not actually follow the instructions that were given. They didn't think twice about what they heard after they left the room, after they left the lecture. In other words, they audited the class. They took in the knowledge, but they didn't do anything with it. They did no work toward the end of what those lecturers said. In fact, the word James used here for hearers can be translated literally that way, auditors. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely auditors who delude themselves. And we have those people today, you know. We do. We have the same kind of people today. Educators are often less than enthusiastic about students who simply audit the class. You talk, talk to a professor and ask him what he thinks. Some, some people don't mind. A lot of professors that I've talked to, they don't really like people that just audit the class. See, because an auditor is someone who takes the class and doesn't want to take any exams. 
doesn't write the term papers, comes and listens and then goes. The attitude is kind of this way. Well, as long as it's interesting, I'll come and hear you. But you know what, professor? I don't have to come to class. And the reality is someone who simply audits all of his classes, guess what? They don't graduate. They don't get credit toward their degree. James is saying, don't be an auditor when it comes to the Word of God. Auditors confuse knowing and believing. They are oftentimes deceived because they think in their minds, I've heard this lecture and I've attended the class, and somehow in their minds they think that they've done it. But the error of their reasoning was that they thought their simple hearing of the words was all that was required. As long as they possessed the head knowledge, they falsely assumed that they were spiritually astute. They could not have been more wrong. They were deluded, James says. It's that, do you, you think that, that that is what Jesus was after? A people whose heads were swollen with theological facts, but whose hearts and lives were shrunken and shriveled and devoid of love? You think that's what Jesus is after? Jesus had some very disturbing words regarding that kind of philosophy back in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who, what? Does. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Skip down to verse 24. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, does something with them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and what? So underline it. Does not act on them. Will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. You think James kind of gleaned something from his older brother's words? Listen, you can't build a house by simply staring at the blueprints, can you? You can't build a house by memorizing the plans. You've got to do what it says to do. Similarly, you can't build a vibrant faith by simply hearing the words of Christ. You've got to let them cut through to your soul and heal that soul, soothe it, strengthen it, and empower it. And beyond that, you've got to let it move the 18 inches down from your head to your heart and then out into the street for action. Amen? So what have we done with God's word? What have you done with God's word? The trouble with many churches today is not the soundness of their doctrine. Okay? They're sound. Too bad they're sound asleep. It's got nothing to do with whether or not the preacher is boring or interesting. Even if someone simply stood up and read the scripture for an hour, if we, if you and I were prepared to receive God's word, we should get something out of that in order to do something with it. You come here to eat of the word that gives life. 
Or do you come to be spoon-fed? Do you come to quench your thirst on the pure milk of the word, or are you sipping it from a dribble cup? I'm being harsh, aren't I? James, I'm just, I'm James' mouthpiece here. You know, sermon sipping is a common characteristic of our times, don't you? You do know that, right? Sermon sipping. Sermon sippers are samplers who move from one drink to another. They just sip, soak, and sour. Sipping is not the same thing as savoring. It's not drinking from the well of living water, is it? Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and sip. No, he said, come, let him come to me and drink. Drink it in. Too many church people have full heads and jam-packed notebooks, but their hearts are empty and their spiritual palates are dull. James says that if that's what you are and if that's all you think your faith requires, then you're deluding yourself. You're deceiving yourself. That is not what real faith on the front lines is about. It's about hearing and doing. We in America have gotten into this entertainment and amusement mentality. You know what amusement is, right? It means to not think. Amuse. Right? It's from an old French word meaning fool and trap, literally caused to muse as a distraction. That's the mentality sometimes when people come to Sunday morning or whatever. But that's nothing new, you know. It's not new at all. Turn back to one of the, one of the prophets called Ezekiel for a moment. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 30. The Lord says, but as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, come now, let's hear what the message is which comes from the Lord. Let's go to church. They come to you as people come and sit before you as my people, and they hear your words. What's it say, though? But they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice, plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. You see? He says it twice in the same passage. So when it comes to pass, as surely it will, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. Now, this is not new, but it's still wrong. Our response to the word is very, very revealing, isn't it? Isn't it? I want to read you an excerpt from a book that I'm reading. Your God is Too Safe by Mark Buchanan. I thought this interesting application here. E.B. White wrote this many years ago in The New Yorker. It says, Last night the world shifted. There was a total eclipse of the moon and the weather conditions were such that most people could have watched it from their front lawns, but most people watched it on television. Unquote. And then Mark Buchanan says, it's, a strange, it's strange that technology has done so much to diminish us. 
It has, of course, done much staggeringly so to empower us. It is, in fact, our harbinger of both freedom and captivity. But here's the irony. Machines are so wonderful that they have killed wonder in us. Here's another. They are such an answer to prayer that they have almost eliminated our sense of the need to pray. We fear, basically, the fallout's very great, he says. We have largely lost our capacity for wonder and imagination. All blame for this, of course, can't be laid at the feet of technology. We fear imagination, he says, believing it somehow undermines the purity of truth. We think it threatens the integrity, the intactness, and the exactness of our finely wrought doctrines. There's almost no awareness that maybe imagination is the missing link between having a doctrine and living it. What's at stake is our ability to know God and to worship Him. If you want to change a people's obedience, the language scholar Paul Recur said, you must change their imagination. Listen to Oz Guinness, what Oz Guinness said. Author and theologian Oz Guinness was once speaking in Australia. And afterwards, a Japanese CEO approached him and he said to Guinness, let these words sink in. When I meet a Buddhist monk, I meet a holy man in touch with another world. When I meet a Western missionary, I meet a manager who is only in touch with the world I know. Oh, those hurt, don't they? And then Guinness adds this comment. He says, you could say that many, many Christians are atheists unawares. This is bitter irony that a faith based on staggering mysteries, the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Cross, the Resurrection, which we're going to celebrate this coming week, the imparting of the Spirit should have become shorn of mystery. It's an irony that Jesus' famous statement to Nicodemus, you must be born again, has in our hands been turned into a slogan and a formula. Out of Jesus' mouth... In Nicodemus's ear, that statement proclaimed a staggering mystery. He says it was the ultimate anti-formula. So we've taken refuge from mystery in numbers, formulas, three-point sermons, seven-step regimens, ten tips for a fuller faith, 30 days to deeper prayer. We've become masters of the how-to manual. We have become the makers of sermons that, like sitcoms, pose a problem and with pithy or witty one-liners, wrap it up in less than a half an hour. He hasn't heard me preach. (laughs) You hear what he's saying? This is convicting to me. He says, the worst consequence of losing our imagination, our wonder, is that we no longer see Christward life as an adventure. It's true, isn't it? That's what James is getting at. He says, this is the big adventure. You hear the word, go out and do it. Take the risk. Have an adventure in your life. We see it as a duty, as a chore, as a list of do's and don'ts and how-to's. 
We think the point of life is to stay as safe and undisturbed as possible. The stories we read in Acts about the church turning the world on its head. Well, what would that kind of thing do to our tax-exempt status? He's really making a point, isn't he? Now, I'll wrap up my reading with this. He says, once speaking at a camp, I held up two video cases for a group of about 70 teenagers to see. One was the case for the first Indiana Jones movie where the archaeologist adventurer goes flinging across continents, brawling with a host of rivals and enemies, swimming oceans and scaling stone walls in a race to find and take the Ark of the Covenant. The cover had a picture of Indiana's sweat-soaked face, a cut, wet, a cut wet with blood across one cheek. Around him were pictures of the Nazi villain, a hooded cobra, a ship under siege. The other video case I held up, cover, showed a sewing machine with a swatch of cloth clamped beneath its chromed foot. The swatch was rough-hewn on one side, neatly stitched on the other. It was a training video for use of the sewing machine. Then he asked the young people, when you look around at churches today, which of these videos would you say best captures the essence of the Christian life? Every single one of them, he said, said the, tr the sewing machine training video. Most churches, in their opinion. And he closes this way, maybe the greatest gift we could give our young people and ourselves I add that on, is to go get ourselves wonderstruck. Isn't that true? I think really that's the essence of what James is getting at when he says, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of it. You go out and do something with the word, it's going to be an adventure. See, our response to the word, says James, is very revealing it reveals, number one, it reveals two things. It either reveals one's apathy. Look at verse 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, and once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Here's a picture of the hearer only. He's like a man who scrutinizes his face in a mirror. Not a hasty glance, but the word here means a careful observation. He looks it over to see his outward appearance, and then before he corrects what he, imperfections he saw there, he walks away and immediately forgets that he ever saw them. It's like getting up and looking at your morning face. Blah. Right? You just as soon forget it, and this man does. And it's interesting to me, you ladies will like this, that James uses the word here when he says... But he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. This is not the, the word for the gen generic human race. He uses the word for male, specific word, not for humankind. A woman would never walk away from a mirror without fixing herself. <laughs> it's true, though. He did use the word male. Those who hear the word of God and do nothing about it, they're acting in the same way. The word shows us ourselves without camouflage, right? This is what the word of God does. Strips us bare. Ladies, it's like seeing yourself with no makeup. 
And here James says that the deluded hearer just goes away and he forgets about it and does nothing about it. Out of sight, out of mind. Well, I can't see it, so nobody else can either. It's just like people who go away and never think about or do anything with what they hear, like in a gathering like this, for example. See, that kind of response reveals an apathetic awareness. James is talking about those of you who do act on what you see as well. He says that your response reveals something much better. See, because when you're exposed to the word, it either reveals something about our apathy or our awareness. Look at verse 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in all that he does, right? Blessed. This second example pictures a man stooping over a mirror, really getting down into it, looking at his reflection, the mirror of the word, which reflects all that we are from the inside out in order to examine most closely what he sees. This actual, this word was used of John, in John chapter 20 in verse 5 of John stooping to see in the grave at Jesus' grave clothes, inspecting. He's absorbed by what he sees. He grabs onto it and does something with it. This is the one who stoops over Scripture, meditates on it, continually searches for the message, and then applies what he's learning to his soul and then to his life. Do you do this? I hope you do. And the question is, to what extent? You know something? This church has a lot of needs. Every church has a lot of needs. Many people in this church have needs. Everyone in this church, I believe, has the resources to meet some particular need that's here. Have you ever sat down and consciously thought about what you have right now that you could heal someone's soul? Through the power of the Holy Spirit? through what you've learned. You could help someone thrive in the faith. You could bring glory to God by using that knowledge and that wisdom in this body. It could be something material that you own. It could be money. It could be your time. It could be the wisdom that you've gained through God's healing of your own pain to bring refreshment and hope to someone else who is drowning, drowning, drowning in despair. You could do that. That's what it means to apply the word. So what is it that you have? You know what? It might be a simple act of love. Smile. Hug. Or as Clayton says, give somebody the rub on the back, right? I don't know. You determine that. Let the Holy Spirit determine that with you. All I know is that is what the church body is supposed to be about. It's not about coming here and sipping on sermons and sitting and soaking and souring, is it? What could you do in this body as a result of God's word implanted in you to glorify God? You answer that question. It could be your repentance and renewed commitment. And someone sees that in your life and they get inspired by that. I challenge you. I challenge you to think about this seriously. Sit down and really think about it. Search the mirror. See what Christ reveals and then act on it. Do you want revival? Then it means each one of us has to take a long, hard look in the mirror and not forget what we see, but to do something about it. Me included. 
Dare to pray the prayer that God always answers. Lord, look inside of me. Show me what changes you want to make and then lead me to make them. James says, this is the man or the woman who will be blessed. This is the man or the woman of Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17. The person to whom Jesus refers when he says during the upper room discourse in John 13 and verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So, James is really getting into it, isn't he? Summary, quick summary, don't just talk here. Don't just hear, listen. Don't just listen, do. Then one more thing James says in this text is don't just do, do right. So James says, finally, you need to review reality. You need to review the reality of your faith. Verses 26 and 27, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is the difference between playing church and pure Christianity. So he says two things here. He says, first of all, stop the ritual. Stop the ritual, verse 26. You know, if you, he's saying James is contrasting the outward expression of religion with the inward reality of a true faith. He's not saying religion is bad. What he's saying is empty religion is bad. 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than that of fat of rams. Hosea 6.6 says, I want you to show love, mercy, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me, God, before more than I want you to offer me offerings. Listen to the way the message puts that. I love it. Imagine this coming from the heart of God. I'm after love that lasts, not more religion. I want you to know God, not go to more prayer meetings. He says, you people who go to a service, tithe your money, tithe your money take communion, sing the songs, say the prayers, you do all the right rituals, might think that that makes you a Christian, but you're deceived. And this is the charge that's most often leveled at ritualized religions like the Catholic Church. But I would come back to you and say this. You know what, Mr. Baptist? This is God speaking. You know what, Mr. Baptist? There's just as much ritual in your denomination as there is in any other. And you know what's worse? There's no excuse because the truth is preached openly and clearly. James says if you have all the ritual but you can't do something as little as bridle your tongue, then your religion has failed you. Boy, that gets to it, doesn't it? If anything should cause us to look at the reality of our faith, the way our tongues wag should. The tongue reveals what's really inside of us. The power of the word can transform that tongue. But ritual will not. It won't. And he's going to get into this more later, so I won't, I won't do it now. But stop the ritual, number one. Number two, 
confirm the reality. Confirm the reality, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion. This is what it is in the sight of our God. It's to visit our orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. True faith, James says, manifests itself clearly in two areas, in our conduct and in our character. That's basically what he's saying in this verse. A true Christian's reaction to the word will express itself in love for others and holiness before God. First in conduct, he's saying sympathize with the suffering. Faith on the front line, James says, deals with the least of these, orphans and widows, he's using as an example. In other words, be radically identified with those people in the world that are marginalized, the poor, the needy. Orphans and widows were examples of the most needy classes in ancient society. James says that a Christian's concern or lack of it for the least of these is really telling in regard to our faith. It really sounds a lot like Jesus' words in Matthew 25, if you want something to read this week, when he separates the sheep and the goats, right? God is all about justice and compassion, among other things. How personally concerned are we for the most needy around us? And, you know, I'm really convicted by this myself. Sometimes I get so caught up in doing the sermons and doing this and that, and I just, I wake up and I realize I don't even know that many people that are that hurting, personally. You see, God presents himself as the protector of such people. Are we? To visit indicates personal contact. It's not practiced by proxy. You see, it's more than just sponsoring a child and making social calls, although both of those are great practices, but it's more than that. Deuteronomy 10.18 says, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And Isaiah 1 says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. In conduct, he says. And secondly, in character. In character. He says, keep oneself unstained by the world, stainless in the world. Faith faith on the front line just doesn't deal with the least of these, but it deals with me and you. In other words, he says, be Teflon spiritually, right? It just beads up and rolls off you. It doesn't stain you. It doesn't stick. This means radical separation. He doesn't say Staying unstained from the world does not mean isolating ourselves from humanity. That's not what he's saying. But it does mean being intelligent. It means being accurate and biblical. It means being alert to the world's godless philosophy and choosing not to accept it and certainly not to adopt it. Too many people are doing just that. They're getting pressured by the world's progressive ideas and political correctness, and they no longer stand for the truth, but they bow to it, to the falsity, and 
They adopt it without even realizing they're doing it, realizing that they're doing it. Basically, God wants us to be like him. That's what James is saying here. He's saying God wants us to be like him in conduct and in character. Care for those who are needy. Keep yourself pure. It's that simple, James says. James, he would like to have us play a different game now. Not Simon Says. It's called Scripture Says. The rules are pretty simple. We must listen intently to what it tells us to do and then do it. If not, James says, our faith is not really operating on the front line. If it's faith at all, it's being kept behind closed doors, and that is simply not where Jesus wants it hidden. Let's pray. Father, I don't know what to say. There's so much to say, so much to apply. You need to stop talking and start doing. That's, that's really what you're saying to us, to me. I pray, Lord God, that when we meet you face to face, that we would have taken these words to, to heart and all the words of your, of your truth and put them into practice, Lord, that when we see you, that you will welcome us with open arms and say, well done, not well heard or well said, but well done. May that be our prayer this morning as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.